0: Last week, as we began our study of the greatest of songs, the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, we saw, as David said, what makes a person truly attractive. Uh, it's not the charm, because that can be deceptive and often is. Uh, it's not beauty, because that goes with time. It is character, because that is what lasts. And that is where, if you want to be truly attractive in the eyes of God and in the eyes of people, then character is where you need to focus rather than simply the external. But what do you do once that attraction is there and the natural emotions take over or begin to increase, especially, as David said, you began to realize that this might actually be the person that the Lord intends for you. How do you deal, as a single especially, with those kind of struggles? Well, let's look together in the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. If you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't bring one, please do. And if you don't have one, we have one perhaps that we can give you. If uh, you can't, if the... Donation for it is too much for you, and that's fine if it is. Because we want you to have a copy of the scriptures that you can have yourself. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, and verse 12 is where we'll start. And again, as you remember last week, we began to peek into the private lives here and look at some very intimate moments of this couple. And as we met them, we saw what attracted them to one another. We also saw kind of some insecurities that Solomon's bride-to-be had. And that was she was particularly insecure about her looks because she looked different than all the other uh, ladies. And also, she was insecure about their relationship. Where is this relationship going? And Solomon, one great principle we gleaned from this was to be affirming to other folks, particularly in the areas of their insecurities that are unfounded. Repeatedly affirming, and Solomon does this and says he thinks she's beautiful, and he essentially tells her, "Uh, I'm yours. You don't have to worry about the commitment. So now as we continue in verse 12, we're going to see some of the same things, but we're also going to see the relationship progress into uh, where their emotions start getting involved much more than a simple attraction. Look at verse 12. She speaks first, and she says, While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now you may remember last week when we started, Sal, uh, Solomon. <laughs> Solomon's girlfriend, sounds a little fishy to me. Solomon's girlfriend, uh, his His memory, particularly his character, was reminded to her by the fragrances. She said, your oils have a pleasing fragrance. She said, your name is like purified oil, a pleasing fragrance. And now here again, verse 12, I take it that while they're apart, while the king's at his table, she says, my perfume, literally it's uh, nard, it's a real strong, strong perfume. It's the perfume... Mary of Bethany poured out on Jesus' feet and filled the whole house, it says, with a scent. It's a very strong perfume. Uh, my perfume gave forth its fragrance, and she says, my beloved, is to me a pouch of myrrh. It's a, a metaphor for that little pouch that a woman would always wear. A woman would wear a little pouch of myrrh around her neck, and it would hang down, and it would constantly give off a pleasing fragrance. And as we all know, fragrance is one of the most uh, poignant memory triggers that we have. And to her, the fragrance of her perfume, the fragrance of the myrrh and the pouch that lies all night between her breasts is uh, a reminder of her, of Solomon. And the henna blossoms as well, but particularly when it says in the vineyards of Engedi, she's getting at something a little deeper than just uh, a pleasing fragrance. Engedi was an oasis just south of Jerusalem, right in the middle of a desert. You've got miles of barren, parched land, and then you've got this Engedi, this little oasis. And in this oasis, she says that he is like the sweet-smelling henna blossoms. And so, imagine why she would she use this this metaphor? You've got this barren, parched land, and and he is to her amidst a barren and parched land, everything else. But he is like a flower in an oasis. It's such a fond and fresh thing to her. And then Solomon, for the first time here uh, today, speaks to her in verse 15. And again, he is returning the compliment. Notice he does just what he did last week and affirms her looks. How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. So again, he is affirming, affirming. Like I said last week, we're not going to get away from this affirming business. This is a steady thing that they do. Continually affirming one another. And like we said last week, that is something that we need to be continually doing to one another. Continually affirming. And not just the looks, though. A woman just doesn't want to hear about the outside. He also says, your eyes are like doves. Now, to us, that may not mean much. But to a Hebrew, to have have someone tell you your eyes are like doves is essentially an idiom for you have a nice character, a nice personality. You get it from the fact that a dove is usually real uh, tranquil and real gentle. He's essentially saying you're beautiful not only on the outside, but you're also beautiful on the inside. And now here she goes again. She starts complimenting him. You get the picture real quickly of what this couple is like. It's like those couples that are always, you know, saying, oh, you're beautiful. No, no, you're beautiful. Oh, no, say it again. You're beautiful. You know, just over and over. It's the giddiness that's just so syrupy. Well, that's what's happening. She, he tells her, you're beautiful. And she takes that same, exact same word in the Hebrew language and, and, And instead of making it feminine heat, she makes it masculine. And verse 16 says the same word, you're handsome. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Again, both the inside and the outside. She says, indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters, cypresses. What's happening here? What's she saying about this couch and the beams of our houses and rafters and such? Well, some of any of you Simon and Garfunkel fans might uh, be familiar with their song America. You know, this of course goes, oh come, I don't remember it. It looks for America. Well, there's a verse in there where, where Simon, Paul Simon is talking about being on, his, on the bus with his girlfriend and it says, laughing on the bus, playing games with the faces. Uh, she said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy. I said be careful, his bow tie is really a camera. They're having fun with their surroundings, in other words. They're pretending a lot of times what new love will do. And I take that's exactly what she is doing here. They're outside, uh, the word here luxuriant literally means like grass. It's spreading, it's flourishing. And she's saying, our couch, the grass is luxuriant. The beams of our houses, meaning the sides, are cedars. The trees, they're obviously in the forest, and the rafters are cypresses up at the top. And so they're pretending that the nature is that is their home. She continues in verse two, uh, chapter two. She says, "I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys." You know, it puzzles me sometimes where we get so many of the. Uh, allegorical interpretations of the Song of Songs regarding Jesus. We've got a song called The Lily of the Valley uh, that we sing sometimes. And I don't know of any other spot in Scripture that says this other than it's speaking of the bride. It's not even Christ, not even the husband that says it. It's the bride. She says that I am a rose of Sharon, lily of the valley is essentially a couple of very common flowers. A rose, or literally the the sweet-smelling crocus flower, was very common in the plain of Sharon, and the lily of the valleys, again, a very common flower. So, in some sense, her view of herself has increased. She's not down on her looks any longer uh, because of what he has said, but she merely says, uh, concedes, "Yes, I'm beautiful, but I'm merely my my beauty is common, like like any other woman." And he says, quite on the contrary. Verse 2, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. So trying to get the picture here of walking, as a brer rabbit might do, through a, a thick briar patch. Okay, and you're just, you're working your way through it, you're getting stuck and poked all through it, and finally you come to some sort of a clearing, and in the middle of all these thorns, you have one lone lily growing up. How unusual that would look wouldn't it? And yet that is the the picture that he gives of her. Your your beauty is not common at all. It is very uncommon. You are like, amidst all the other maidens, a beautiful lily among thorns. A lily is something that you look at, that you would get to enjoy, uh, that you smell, that you get to enjoy its pleasantness. But the thorns, you don't touch those. They're hands off of the others. And now she kind of returns this again. It's going back and forth. She, He has told her, you're unique. Now he does the same thing. Uh, She does the same thing in verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So, again, get the picture. You're walking through a thick forest of nothing but oaks. You come upon one apple tree with rich apples on it. Again, it's just saying you're unique. You're not like anybody else. And she takes the the simile even further when she says that he is like shade. In his shade, I took great delight. Remember last week where she came from? Did she come from an existence of shade? No, she came from an existence of growing up and working in the sun. Remember? That's what caused her to be so self-conscious about her looks. Because the sun had burned her. She was all different different than the way the other ladies looked. And so he is to her a complete opposite of the way she's grown up. He is to her shade in comparison to the uh, the insecurity that she felt growing up being burned in the sun. And not only that, but she says that his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now, it's tempting, and I've read some commentators that... Like to go far with this, with sexual innuendos, but uh, I don't think that's what it's talking about. And any more than sitting down in the shade is. She's just saying that you are like a delight to me. The emphasis is the sweetness. His fruit was sweet. It's a pleasantness. You've got protection here with the shade. You've got pleasantness here with the sweetness. And that's not all he provided for. Look at verse 4. He has brought me in uh, he has brought me to his banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Again, this is used a lot of times in Christian circles for a song, though Jesus is nowhere mentioned. He's speaking of this uh, banner is something that an army would use. Whenever an army was kind of scattered and in disarray, they would raise a banner up that would give uh, large instructions for the whole army to see and so that they could get regrouped. To have a banner was a public uh, announcement. It was big, it was implicit, that everybody would see it. It was obvious, intended to be obvious. And this banner, notice, was over her, and what did it say on it? Love. Love. Love Solomon's love. To me, this is very relevant or very important. Because remember what he told her last week about her insecurity. Where are we going with this relationship? He said, in the privacy of just the two of them, he said, it's you. You're the one that I want. But now in public, he's also saying the same thing. Claiming that she is the one. Ladies, how many times have you gone out with somebody? All right. And in the intimacy of the dinner, or the movie, or whatever, he leans over and he says, you know, you're the only one. And then you get in public, and it's like he doesn't know you. Now, no jabbing here. That's not the, that's not the point. The point is that that is, that is common among men. To say one thing in private, to get whatever, and to say... Something completely different in public. When all the other ladies who he said the same thing to are around. Solomon is not this way. What he says in private is what he says in public. You are mine, he said in private. In public, his banner over her is his love. The way he is in private is the way he is in public. He is not a dual personality. And such a man of character, like we talked about last week, is this, who means what he says... Gets her motor going. And here where we come to the point of our message today. Look at what she says in verse 5. Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples. Because I am lovesick. You know what lovesick means? It's got a couple of... Uh, innuendos, or a couple of inferences, you might say. I'll give you the gentle one first. The gentle one is like if you see a young couple, the way they often act around one another. It almost makes you sick, you know? Just the, just the, the giddiness and the giggleness, and you just want to say, you know, just wait. Just wait, all right? I did the premarital counseling for Jerry and Sanja Bradshaw, and I could always tell... Uh, before they even got to my door that they were about to come in because you could hear them giggling all the way up the stairs. You know, she'd be giggling. <laughs> Jerry, bless his heart, he's giggling too. <laughs> the whole time. They come in. I've got two chairs there in the office. They sit in the same one. there together. Just sick with love toward one another. I grew up with a, a friend named Scott who one time got a phone call from his girlfriend at that time lived in Houston and I was over at his house one night and he got this phone call and when he got off the phone I mean he was bananas he went and got and went out in the backyard you don't dare do this in the house he went out in the backyard and I'm not kidding did calisthenics he did uh, what do you call those things cartwheels He did all kinds of incredible feats, jumping around, going Yahoo! He looked like Daffy Duck, (laughs) (laughs) bouncing around, Yeehaw! Yeehaw! Underlay, underlay! But he was excited, lovesick, emotionally, physically, incredibly excited about this person. Faith Mills described it like this: She said, "I climbed up the door and I shut the stairs. I said my shoes and took off my prayers." I shut off my bed and climbed into the light, and all because he kissed me goodnight. I think that's the idea here, at least in part, of her needing this refreshment or this sustaining or this reviving. is because she is sick with love. She is faint with love. And that's the gentle meaning. There's also another that... uh, Raisins ain't going to fix. And that is in verse 6. She says, Look what will satisfy this lovesickness. Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. Now, how? This is not just your uh, common hug here. To have the left hand around the head is not what she said. She said, may his left hand be under my head. Now, what's the only way that the hand can be under the head? As if they're laying down. She desires to lay with Solomon. And I see here a very practical principle that so often we are not taught as singles. And that is that the sexual desires that you have to be expressed with a person whom you feel is God's desire for your life. It is natural, it is normal, it is healthy, it is good to have those desires. But notice what also must go with that desire. And she says it right away. The very next verse, verse 7. I adjure you, or I command you, or I exhort you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. In 1972, Time magazine had an article that made the statement, quote, Teenagers generally are woefully ignorant about sex. 1972. Well, that was then. This year, June, Time Magazine had an article comparing those two articles. Almost 25 years apart now. And this article was entitled, Where'd You Learn That? And in it, they talked about the fact that more than half of females and 75% of all teenagers between the ages of 15 and 19, of all males, so you've got more than half of females and 75% of males between the ages of 15 and 19 do not marry as virgins. I didn't know it was that high. It's not surprising. But that's incredible, isn't it? Three out of four of our young men, and one out of two, or two out of four of our young ladies. Mary Pfeiffer made the statement, girls in our culture are caught in the crossfire of our, cultural, of our culture's mixed sexual messages. Sex is considered both a sacred act between two people united by God and it's considered the best way to sell suntan lotion. Country songwriter Butch Hancock, back in April, made a great statement. I love this. He said, he said in Lubbock we grew up with two main things. God loves you and he's going to send you to hell. And secondly, uh, sex is bad and dirty and nasty and awful and you should save it for the one you love. And then he, he adds, and you wonder why we're all crazy. In a culture such as this, we need a fresh, a clear unmistakenly clear word from God, a continual reminder, because our culture is going to tell us something completely different. If it feels good, do it. The natural desire that God has given you, why would He give you that desire if there was not an outlet for you to express it? We'll give you all kinds of justification for doing just flat against what He says we should be doing. We need a fresh reminder, a regular reminder about it. I remember as a kid growing up at Christmas, I would always get to open one gift Christmas Eve. and then I got to open the rest of them uh, on Christmas Day. And I would beg and I would plead to be able to open more than one gift or even all of them if they'd have let me before Christmas I said, nope, you got to wait. And after the fact, I was always real glad that I waited. Because it made, that's what made Christmas so special. At least for a kid. You know, I heard, you know, about the Jesus stuff, and that was fine. But you know, as a kid, it's really about Christmas. About getting stuff. Or at least, you know, that's really what it is. You may say something else, but as a kid, that's really what it's all about. So you understand what I'm, where I'm coming from. But I, I wanted it and I looked forward to it and I knew that they weren't going to give. But I asked anyway. And finally on Christmas Day, you know the excitement of waking up. You're up before everybody else. You run in. You wake up your parents. Mom, yeah, it's Christmas Day. Let's go over the prayers. You go and you rip them all open in five minutes and you enjoy them for the rest of the day. That's what made Christmas special as a kid. Is waiting to open those special gifts. Many of us could have used, perhaps, a better sex education from our families, from our churches. Uh, We don't want to rely, certainly, on the government to give it to us. It would have been much better to hear, in total opposite what Butch Hancock and many others have grown up hearing, that sex is not bad and dirty and nasty and awful, but it is a wonderful thing. It is a beautiful thing. It is a natural thing. It is God's gift to you. You have His freedom and His his blessing to enjoy that gift. But, you need to wait for Christmas. You need to wait for the day that makes those gifts special. And not sneak out and rip it all open ahead of time. And come Christmas, have nothing to open. Now, I know that many of you have already opened your gifts. And many of you singles. And so I don't want you to think that uh, I'm standing up here saying that this message isn't for you. That you've already blown it. There's no hope. Mm -hmm. The grace of the Lord Jesus is sufficient to, um, to cleanse your mind and to help you to be, as he says in the scriptures. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have gone. New things have come. And regardless of what your past was like, don't listen to the devil who would tell you, look, you've already blown it. You are scum. You don't deserve it. So just go out and live it up. It's too late. It is never too late with Jesus Christ. Never. Never. If you are willing from this day to walk in a faithful relationship with Him, and that is, while the physical past is one thing, spiritually, before Him, you can be a virgin. Spiritually. Verse 7 gives us a helpful command. Literally, we're told... Do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. The NIV does a better job there, I think. It's not my love. It's love until it pleases. She's talking to the daughters of Jerusalem. And she uses these words, arouse or awaken. In English, those are kind of synonyms. And in the Hebrew Solomon used to write this, he used the same, the same word, but he shaded it just a little differently to give two different meanings. The way he wrote the word arouse means don't cause it to happen. Don't, don't, don't force it to happen. The way he wrote the word awaken uh, has the idea of intensity, has the idea of repetition, has the idea of being so engrossed and indwelling on it, so infatuated with the idea that that's all you think about. He's saying don't do that. Until the proper time, and then uh, she uses this command or this oath by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field. Yeah, a gazelle, obviously. You know what a hind is? It's a it's a very young female deer. And I think that she uses these. She chooses these not only because they're love uh, they're lovely, they're soft, they represent love, but because they're fast. And I'm not just pulling that out of thin air. As we go through the book, we're going to see these very animals in the context of speed. And so if, you, if you'd let me, I want to paraphrase what verse 7 is saying. He's saying, I adjure you, I exhort you, I encourage you, I command you. Do not cause these natural desires that you have to awaken In such a way that you act them out. Don't cause them in in your mind to to be so infatuated, to so focus on it over and over and over that it's all you think about. Rather, be like the gazelle or the hind of the field and run. When you feel these desires coming on, run. Like Joseph did, he ran. Like we're told in Timothy, "...you, O man of God, flee from these things." Now, you're not fleeing from... uh, This is where so many people get messed up. It's not that sex is wrong. It is right. It is as right as it can be. God invented it, and He wants us to have it. But He wants us to have it on Christmas. He wants us to have it in the context of where it was intended to be enjoyed. So, if it's Thanksgiving, run. If it's Christmas Eve, run. If it's Christmas Day, go for it. But not until then. That's what the verse is telling us. A helpful word here is the word until. You're not always going to have to wait. Okay? There will come a time. Self-control is healthy. This restraint is healthy. There's nothing wrong with this. We exercise this in all other areas of our lives. Self-control is an issue that we have to have in all areas. And if you look, think about what the Bible says in the various areas of finances, of of your speech, of your eating, uh, every area of our lives we have to exercise self-control. And if you don't exercise self-control in regard to the areas of of finances, you've got to pay the cost. There are consequences for that. Uh, The issue of food and exercise, like we talked about last month, there's consequences to that. If you don't do what the scriptures say. Regarding your speech, there's consequences. Regarding sex, there's consequences. Self-control is an issue for every area of our lives, not just this area. Practical wisdom says that. Self-control enables us to enjoy the gifts that God intended. Be it money, be it speech, be it food, be it sex. Self-control enables us to enjoy everything, every good thing that God has given us in the context that it was designed to be enjoyed and thus enjoyed far more than it could have been. Here's a helpful principle. All good gifts from God are worth the wait, even sex, including sex. Now I want to get real practical here for a second. If you have... If you have premarital sex, your objectivity in that relationship is shot. You can't see clearly. Paul tells us in Romans that we are to, in view of God's mercies, offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him, which is our spiritual act of worship. Our bodies as a living sacrifice. So so why? So we're not conformed to the world but rather we're transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we may be able to test and approve God's will. If you're not offering your body as a living sacrifice to God, you can't know God's will. Because your mind is not conformed to that of Jesus Christ, it's conformed to the world. And you cannot with objectivity look at that relationship. You cannot with confidence look at that person and say, that's God's will for my life. You can't do it. You don't know God's will if you're not walking in it. And a second thing that happens very often, especially in the life of Christians, is they're involved in this kind of relationship and they'll say, well, uh, but we're getting married. I know we're going to get married. And you may be very well confident that's the one that the Lord wants for you. But the fact is you're not married. And there's a big difference between Gonna be in R. For one thing, Proverbs tells us don't boast in tomorrow because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, you may if you may very well get married if you live, but you don't know that you're gonna live tomorrow. And you have been taken from someone what some other person in God's sovereignty was to have. You don't know tomorrow. So to have that kind of a justification is false. There is no justification. James tells us to have that kind of a confidence in the future. Today or tomorrow, we'll go here, uh, this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. He says that kind of boasting is foolish. In fact, he says it's evil. He says what you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. That kind of boasting is evil. 25% of all engagements, by the way, never even make it to the altar. So being engaged is not a license to go ahead. Until that time, until the time the pastor tells you, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Until you hear that, the attitude toward that other person needs to be, as Paul wrote to Timothy, to consider the younger men as brothers, the younger women as sisters in all purity. So what would you do with your sister? Very often I'll I'll hear the question, David and I were talking about this some last week, and uh, I thought about it as a single. It's definitely a relevant question. How far can I go as a single? How far will God let me, as a Christian single, go before I'm sinning? It's a good question. I heard some helpful advice as the answer to that question one time. Uh, in our culture, don't touch anything a bathing suit covers. Now, I say in our culture, because if you go over to Europe, I would add a few subpoints. That. But I, I still think there's even a better perspective to go from, from that. It's not how close can I get to sin without getting burned. That is not the perspective of a Christian. How close can I get to sin without getting burned? The perspective ought to be rather, what would I like to say for my spouse? Or uh, used a little more biblically, perhaps, as the Lord Jesus said, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you? What would you like your spouse to say for you? That is what you should do. And not until you married is that person your spouse. If God is right, and He is, then all good gifts from God are worth the wait, including sex. You know, I saw... Uh, I-, I wanted to show this morning, and I just, just flat be honest with you I flat forgot to get the video this week the, uh, this, the movie Twins Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, Danny DeVito there's a scene in there where at this point in the movie anyway Arnold Schwarzenegger is still a virgin and Danny DeVito finds this out and whispers under his breath because he can't believe it he says a 200 pound virgin speaking of Arnold Schwarzenegger and in the context of the movie and the depravity of it it's funny and then you back up and you think a much more realistic view is, yes, that is how our culture views us. That is how our culture views what God says is good. To laugh at it, to snicker at it like, you've got to be kidding me. You're a virgin? A virgin? For all of you who have by the grace of God continued in purity since the day you were born, My hat is off to you. You have endured in a culture that does not support that and I pray that you will continue to be faithful. Those of you who uh, have not yet, who have not done that, again, I want to encourage you. Let the past be the past and commit today spiritually before God that you will remain pure until the time that God gives you that person whom it would be. In Jesus Christ, the old things have gone, the new things have come. Christ has died for all sins, with no exception. Do not be ashamed to stand up and say with pride, I am a virgin, or I am spiritually pure, if physically you have not been yet. Because that is the character of God. You ashamed to be like God? God is pure. God demanded pure gold for the temple, pure sacrifices for the sacrifices. Uh, Jesus Christ had to be a pure and perfect sacrifice. He lived a perfect life. God desires purity, as the band sang, in all of our lives. There was a little boy one time who went to his dad, and this peddler was selling some chips on the street. I think it was one of those roach coaches, you know, they're called, they go by... And um, he wanted to buy some potato chips, and so the guy, the little son, comes up to the father and says, uh, "Would you give me a dime for some a bag of chips?" And the father says, "Well, you know, I had promised you a dollar next week for uh, that ball that you wanted. If you want, I'll give you the dime now for you to have that, or you can wait." He says, "No, I'll give it to me." So he took it. Ate his chips, next week came, and the kid wanted the dollar that the father had promised. And the father said, Look, you decided that uh, you wanted the chips. You decided you'd rather have the dime than the dollar. And you can tell real quickly where this story is going. Obviously, the child was disappointed as all the other children had a ball to play with and he did not. What do you want in your sexual relationship? Not talking about the past, I'm talking about from now on. Do you want a dollar's worth or do you want a dime's worth? If you walk in purity before the Lord Jesus, you get all that He has promised and the sexual relationship that He will give you, Lord willing. I wrote down several benefits of waiting. You know, you can always take two task- tactics. You can try to scare the hell out of people so they won't do stuff. Or you can tell them the benefit of doing it right. So instead of trying to scare the hell out of you, I decided that I would try to encourage you with the benefits of living a pure life before God. And these are just a few that I considered. Listen to this. The certainty of no disease, the increasing joy of a sexual relationship and marriage by freedom from the sin of comparison. I'll tell you what, that'll eat your lunch. The sin of comparison. The joy of discovering and learning together. A deeper sense of commitment in marriage. Fellowship with God. Well, that shouldn't have been at the top of the list. Lack of self-centeredness. Lack of self-deception. Reducing the chances of sexual addiction. and, And having a clear conscience. Just to name a few. All good gifts from God are worth the wait, including sex. Tell you what, I was told first hour, this was really a very powerful message. We had a, la- a lady, a kid you not, go into labor in this, uh, I'm not kidding, first hour. We had to take her to the hospital. And so uh, your, your precious little one there reminded me of that. This is a, uh, a very poignant subject, obviously, It wasn't the message, it was just time. But I thought I'd throw that in. (laughs) But do you want God's best? We can all relate to what it was like at Christmas the joy of waiting. You know, for gifts that we end up trashing, all right? Transfer that in your sexual relationship with the person that God's designed for you. It's worth the wait. It's worth the wait, as all God's good gifts are. Let's pray. Our Lord, we all bow before You at one time in our lives as spiritual fornicators and adulterers because lust, as the Lord Jesus tells us, we've committed adultery in our heart. We can all relate to impurity. Some of us physically, others perhaps simply in the mind. But Lord, for whichever sins we have violated these principles, we know that Jesus' death on the cross has paid for all of them. And that any who will place their faith in Jesus Christ may not just have the blessing, the blessed promise of eternity in heaven. But also have the blessed promise that what you began in us, you will continue to fulfill until the day of Christ. That is, continually renew our minds away from the world that tells us to go for it, to not consider the consequences, to do whatever we want to do right now to satisfy our urges. Lord, we're not better than anybody else. But we do want to be like you. We want to be pure. We want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who stayed pure his entire life. So I pray today for the single who is here and is struggling with these issues, that you might so encourage them today to stay faithful and to not give up. And I pray, Lord, for the marriages that are represented here as well, to stay faithful in that relationship and nurturing it and to not give up. Lord, we know you have our best at heart. Give us the strength to wait for it. And we'll praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Lord bless you.